Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew 23. That's where we're going to begin today. Matthew chapter 23 is going to give us a little bit of background for what we're going to cover today in Acts chapter 4. We discussed in our Sunday school class last semester that we don't actually interact with reality. We don't actually interact with reality. We instead interact with our interpretation of reality. Of course, we all think our interpretation of reality is the actual reality and everyone else is just wrong, right? But we're, we're interacting with how we interpret things, how we see things, the lens through which we look at the world. And so part of what we do in studying scripture is to try and, uh, I don't know what you do with lenses, regrind them, I don't know, bring them into focus so that we see the world in a biblical way, so that we think in biblical terms and we think uh, according to biblical categories and biblical assessment. And so that's an ongoing process throughout the course of our Christian lives. A person doesn't just become a Christian, pick up a Bible and, hey, They see things very clearly. We all know that, right? And even those of us who've walked with the Lord for a little bit longer, we still are struck with uh, how God views things in a different way and presents them to us differently, perhaps, than we are used to uh, thinking about them in ourselves. So we don't actually interact with reality. We interact with our interpretation of it. And so that's part of the reason we talked about in our Sunday school class. Part of the reason we need scripture is to inform us from the outside by revelation from God of what is actual reality according to him. And he's the one who declares what reality is. And he's the one who sees it for what it actually is and communicates it to us. And so that's part of the process of us studying scripture. And so I'm going to go to prayer now and pray for us. And part of that prayer is going to be that we will be humble to that teaching, that information from the outside, that revelation from God about what actually is reality. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, once again, we come to you this morning and give you glory. We praise you and uh, we praise you for giving us your word. And we have time set aside in our day and our week where we get to open your word and sit down And we don't have phones ringing, and we don't have uh, uh, business to do, and we don't have other things. They may be clamoring for our attention in our brains, but, uh, but this time is set aside for you. And I pray that you would work during this time. I pray that you would help us to uh, concentrate on what we have here. Pray that you, by your spirit, would work within us. Help us to engage, that we would uh, not just hear a message or uh, um, see it as a performance or uh, something that we can um, just participate in for a few minutes and then we go about our week. But instead, I pray that you would use your, your, uh, your word by your spirit in our lives, even in the next few minutes as we look at um, these two passages we're going to look at. So, Father, we seek to honor you, and we ask that you would be honored and glorified during this time and that we would be built up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I said turn to Matthew chapter 23, and that is because there's a, a passage here, a discussion that's going on. It's, it's by Jesus, and uh, he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and uh, it's not a very flattering passage. Uh, and in order to set the background for this passage, the verse that we're going to land on that I think is uh, sort of what is pictured in, in Acts chapter 4, we need to give a little bit of background to what's going on in this conversation. It's, uh, again, it's not flattering to the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, he's speaking to them. He's been interacting with them. He's been getting a lot of pushback from them and, and questions and challenges. And it's very clear uh, 
that they don't believe in him. It's very clear that, that they're kind of assessing him, critiquing him, holding him at bay, and he's wrong for this and this, and, and, and uh, they're, they're standing in opposition to him. And so finally he comes out and he addresses them in chapter 23, and, and he speaks the seven woes, right? Not W-H-O-A, but woe as in a bad thing, right? Curse, almost a curse. And so he says uh, he's going to speak the seven woes, and he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and who are the, the, the teachers of the people? They were the ones in charge of giving religious instruction. They were the, the religious leaders there in Israel, and he's speaking to them, and it's not flattering. He says in verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. He goes on in verse 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So with that background and, and that speech, this very strong indictment of the scribes and the Pharisees whom he calls hypocrites, he says this in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And so he's been railing against the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees all the way through, and in his concluding statement here in verse 27, he's naming them, those scribes and Pharisees, Jerusalem. And so he's speaking to them as Jerusalem, meaning those who are in charge, those who are leading the people. And he says here, uh, Jerusalem, the, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, right? And he had identified those as the fathers of the scribes and the Pharisees who did all that stuff. And he said, how often would I have gathered your children, the people, the regular people of Jerusalem? How often I would have gathered your children and you were unwilling. You stood in the way. You got in the way, religious leaders. You stood between the act of God, the intention of God, the good work of God, and the people as the recipients of it. And so you have this whole context. That's part of the struggle throughout the course of the Gospels. There's a struggle between Jesus with the religious leaders of his day because he came on and said things that were unflattering to them, excuse me, to them like the seven woes. And he said many other things uh, to them that were, that were contradictory to the things that they had said, that were scandalous to them, and they hated him. And this is, this is God, the Son, ministering to, evangelizing the people, and the religious leaders were standing in the way. So as a religious leader, I find that to be 
very convicting, very challenging, and a, and a warning. I do not want to be on the receiving end of that. I do not want to stand between anyone and Jesus. But we're going to find in our passage today in Acts chapter 4, that's exactly what's going on. You have the religious leaders standing between Jesus and the people, standing between the people and them coming to God. And so um, we've entitled our study for the day, A Comparative Study of Response. And you've got this event that happened that we talked about uh, last week and, and the week before, that, that you've got this miracle that happened where there's a lame man and he was healed. He'd been lame his entire life and he was miraculously healed by God in the name of Jesus. It was clear for all to see. He had sat out there in front of the temple forever and everyone, if they didn't know his name, they recognized him because he always sat there asking for alms. And here he is walking around. Not just walking, but leaping and praising God and making a big deal out of the fact that he's in the temple now and he's rejoicing and he's hale and hearty and he can jump and Peter says he has perfect health. So uh, it's visible for everybody. And so Peter stands up and he preaches that great sermon that we had at the end of chapter 3 and he clarifies, he, he, he tells us what that healing meant, that it wasn't just, yay, a great thing happened and the man can walk now, but this is really about Jesus. It's a big deal. It's a declaration of who Jesus is and, and it's a declaration for all to see. And so Peter makes that clear and explains that. Well, uh, that doesn't necessarily go well. Uh, for the religious leaders or from their perspective. And so we turn to our first paragraph, verses 1 through 4 here, and we see, uh, we see uh, these verses. And as they were speaking, this is in Acts chapter 4 and verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And so you have uh, these, these two men, Peter and John, who've been standing in the temple. They've been preaching, and, and the, the message they're preaching is a very provocative message. Here, here were these guys who were, you know, it's, they're, they're uneducated. <clears throat> according to their standards, they were, they were not professional teachers and they were certainly not uh, vetted by the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the, the, the rulers of the temple. They were the ones kind of in charge of things. They were the aristocracy of, of the temple. And so they hadn't vetted these guys to be out there teaching and here they were out there teaching. And, uh, and not only that, but they're out there, they're teaching in the name of Jesus. And if you think back, it wasn't all that long before, not too many chapters prior, that this same council had been declaring that Jesus was guilty and deserving of death. And here are these two upstarts teaching and preaching in the temple on, on their turf, teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. And that was very provocative for them because they had shut him down. They had put him to death. And they probably thought that was all over. And here you have these two guys teaching and preaching. And, but it wasn't so much that they were uh, teaching. It was more what they were preaching. And, and uh, what they were preaching it was a great annoyance to the Sadducees, to the leaders. Because what they were teaching and what they were preaching was the resurrection in Jesus and the Sadducees, I learned this from my early days as a Christian, and it is very true. It's something to remember. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Uh, 
I thought that was silly and like a kid's thing. And the more I learned about Sadducees, I'm like, man, that's right on. It's exactly right. The Sadducees were not only the religious aristocracy, they were the, they were the, the, the religious leading families. And we're going to see later on that certain families are represented. Well, they were the ones who were the important ones of the Sadducees. They were in charge of the temple and the high, the high priests would be named from within their families. And so they were very important, but, but doctrinally they didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that actually they were in the end times in a sense, that the messianic age was upon them. They, they didn't believe in any kind of resurrection. They didn't believe in any kind of angels or demons or anything like that. And so they had, they had a very different kind of theology from the Pharisees that we usually hear about, a different kind of religious leader. The Pharisees were kind of the religious leaders of the people out in the communities, teaching in the synagogues. But the Sadducees were gathered around the temple. And real worship happens at the temple. And the sacrifices you offer happen at the temple. And here, uh, they, they don't believe in the resurrection. They certainly don't believe in Jesus. They're glad he's gone. And these two upstarts sneak in. They're not sneaking in, but they're teaching in their temple, their place. And they're teaching in the name of Jesus, whom these people hate. And they're teaching about the resurrection that they don't even believe in. And so it was a, it was a big deal that these, that these two men were out there teaching and preaching in this way. And it was a, a very great, uh, annoyance to them. They were, they were greatly upset by what was going on, greatly annoyed as, as uh, my version says here. And, uh, and so that's their response, right? They hear this teaching, preaching by these, by these guys. That's the response of the leadership and it's, it's annoyance, right? And we're going to see what it, what it's going to lead to here. Uh, at this time that they actually arrested them and they, they put them in custody. Right? It was late in the day and they couldn't deal with it that day. So they arrest them. They keep them overnight. And they're going to question them uh, tomorrow. And so, uh, But that's their response to arrest these men who are proclaiming this. But there's another response, right? There's a, a growing belief amongst the people because this message that Peter and John had just preached was, re- was rejected out of hand by these council members because of these other reasons we've talked about. Uh, verse 4, But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So you remember just a couple of chapters earlier after Pentecost, 3,000 came to Christ and were baptized that day. And so the church explodes. It's enormous, right? And, and uh, this, this new movement is not just a struggling little movement. It's big. And then by this chapter, we don't know how much time has passed exactly. But what's going on here is that the, the number came to about 5,000. And so you see growth within the church. And actually there's evidence within the text that it might actually indicate that the number just of the men was 5,000. And so if you count 5,000 men and then you add in their families, what's the number? I don't know. 10,000, 15, I, it's hard to, hard to know. And it seems like the passage may be saying that it was growing larger, so large that they didn't count everybody. They just counted the men to kind of do shorthand to keep track of everybody. And so it's growing, it's booming. There's a, as much as these religious leaders wanted to quell this and keep it quiet and, and don't talk about it and don't let anyone kind of see, it's a growing and big movement. This is a, this is becoming a significant portion of the population of Jerusalem is believing in Jesus. And so it's growing and it's booming and there is growing belief. But you'll notice that belief is amongst the people. It's amongst the everyday people like you and like me. The church is growing. But then we move on in our paragraph and our next paragraph and we see, uh, starting in verse five, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so you you have this question going on. The, 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 the apostles have been called before the council, and the idea is they're kind of gathered around them in a semicircle, and you've got the apostles down there in the place of accusation, questioning, and, and it's a very intimidating kind of kind of counsel, kind of a setting. It's a big deal. If you think back, Peter and John, of course, knew Jesus, and they were very aware of the trials that went on on the night when Jesus was arrested and leading up to his crucifixion. And this this was a part of that. These, These council members were involved in that, and they had cast their vote against Jesus also. And so they're they may have been thinking, our leader, you know, Jesus, he came and stood before them and was condemned. And we're just you know, those who were sent by him. And here we are standing before the same group. And so it would have been a very intimidating, uh, intimidating situation for the apostles to be in. But the question that's at hand and what was really uh, going on in this passage was a question of credit. Right? I think it's interesting how the, the, the way he introduces this passage. Annas the high priest and Caiaphas. Okay, those are kind of familiar names. If you read your New Testament, you see them uh, occur uh, in various places. But, but John and Alexander, no idea. Why are they mentioned? Well, it seems to be because they're from important families. They're representatives of this aristocracy. Right? They are, they are the, a part of the Sadducees. They are the important people. They're the, they're the Kennedys and the, and the Bushes and the names that we know, right? That's, they're representatives of those people in, in, uh, in their day. And, and those who were the, in charge of the temple and, and all the worship that happened there and the high priest would come from their family and, and, and it, they were important people. And the question was, I think the way, the way Luke puts this together in loading, preloading this whole story with, yeah, this guy was there and this guy and this guy, like naming off people who are very important. And what's the question they ask? By what name or what power did this happen? Because you've got the important people obviously gathered here. These are the people whose names matter. But by what name was this thing done? Who gets the credit? Who gets the credit? By what authority was this done? And, uh, and so their, their question is, is not really about the event itself, how did it happen? That's not really the question. Did it happen? Is it real? That's not really the question. The question is more, uh, what, who, what gives you the right to do this? And who's going to get the credit for this good thing? And that's what they're, that's what they're driving after. And so it's a, a question of credit. And I, I love the way Peter answers here. So Peter filled with the Spirit, right? It's, it's very interesting that uh, we've talked about this before throughout the book of Acts. Uh, and, uh, someone will be filled with the Spirit, and very often the next thing they do is speak. And they're speaking God's words to, to someone. That, that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's an activity for, for Peter of speaking in this context in a very spirit-empowered way. He didn't work a miracle here. He had just done that yesterday. 
He didn't work a miracle here, but being filled with the Spirit, he speaks. He's, he's very polite to them, and he says, rulers and of the people and elders, right? But then I love his next question because there's a bite to it. So if we're being questioned about this good thing that happened to a crippled man, this lame guy who sat here for all these years and how he was healed, if that's what you're questioning us about, that, that's where you want to go? You want to attack that? Okay, we can deal with that. Right. And so um, it's interesting that, that, that they that would be their question. That would be the direction of what they wanted to know is that they weren't concerned with, hey, how's you know, how's this guy doing? You know, he's leaping and, you know, praising God. He's you know what they could have. There were wonderful things, wonderful aspects of this. The guy who had sat there for all those years is now running around and jumping and praising God and all that kind of stuff. And that's irrelevant. And so Peter points out, no, it really is relevant. And you're calling us to the carpet for this. For having done this good deed to this man, and you're questioning us about that, and so there's a uh, there's a bite to what Peter says here, and I love I love what he says. He points out about Jesus again. He doesn't pull any punches, by the way. When he's talking about Jesus there in ver- verse ten, he says, "Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, let's just bring that back out." Let's don't forget that. And you cast your vote in a very similar kind of setting to the one that, that uh, we're in right now, whom you crucified. He, do, he doesn't pull any punches. The apostolic preaching is very willing to point out sin, is very willing to point out the opposition of the, of the people they're speaking to against Jesus. Peter's already done this a couple times. In 2.23, he told the crowd on Pentecost that Jesus is the one whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In 3.13, he's speaking to the crowds and he tells them, the, those who were gathered in the temple because of the healing of this lame man, that they had d- delivered over and denied and killed Jesus, who's the author of life. And so he doesn't pull punches. He talks about their sin. He talks about their involvement in standing against Jesus. And that's the consistent nature of apostolic preaching, is a willingness to do that, a willingness to go there, a willingness to establish guilt before the gospel is going to come. And it's going to come. He moves on in, in, in his passage in talking about the fact that this salvation is in Jesus alone, that Jesus uh, is the one who healed this man. It was by the, his name, it was by his power that, that this man was healed. It was Jesus who did it. There was nothing magical or special about Peter and John. It was Jesus working again amongst the people. This Jesus whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. It's amazing, by the way, how often the resurrection is a focus of apostolic preaching also. Very common. We tend to talk about the cross more, perhaps more frequently in relation to how often we talk about the resurrection. But the resurrection is a big deal. The fact that God, in raising Jesus, declared the deal was done. Because Jesus could have said all kinds of things. God's doing this thing through me and I'm the special messenger of God and he could have claimed all those things and even been a great guy and then even died a noble death. Would you know it was true? What did God think of that? Well, God tells you what he thinks when he raised Jesus from the dead. He defeated death and he he declared, I accept this. 
This works for me. This is the deal I have made. This is what, what I have accomplished. And I demonstrate that by raising my son. And so you see that that's, that's the message. It's very consistent. And it is by him this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus was the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He's quoting here from the Old Testament, Psalm 118. And he's quoting a verse there that talks about the stone that, that, that uh, was rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone, the chief stone, the most important stone, the finish stone and he says this Jesus is the stone that was rejected remember that verse and they all knew that verse Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone the most important stone you stood against him and he's actually the most important thing ever he's the most important person ever he accomplished the most important thing and there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's a a very strong indictment against those rulers who were the builders who rejected this stone, who, who despised this stone, who hated this stone. And it's the most important stone. It's the cornerstone because of what God has done. And so it's a very strong indictment that you stood exactly contrary to what God was doing. I never want to hear that. I never want to hear that of me. That I stood contrary, that I stood against, that I resisted what God was doing. I want to be in line with what God is doing. And these these religious leaders stood exactly against what God was doing. This this Jesus is a very special one. He's... he's, uh, He's the unique, He's the only way of salvation. And 4.12 makes that, makes that very, very clear to us that that is the case when there's, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can speak about Jesus today. You can talk about Him in, in public and you could even, you know, we talked about Twitter and tweeting in our Sunday school class this morning and you can even do that you can you can talk about Jesus on social media but in order for it to be socially acceptable and there's a way to do it such that it's socially acceptable if you talk about Jesus lowly meek and mild then you can talk about you can talk about that Jesus wants you to be nice you can talk about that just don't go beyond that you're not going to be acceptable anymore. You're going to be you're going to be run out of town. You're you're not going to be uh, you're going to be censured in some way. And so, uh, if if you instead speak of Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, that's not going to fly. If you speak of Jesus instead as Yahweh Himself, who's come in the flesh and He He commands allegiance from everyone, that's not going to fly. That's not going to work. That's not going to be socially acceptable. We're expected to tone it down. Society won't stand for that. But the preaching of Peter is completely different. Peter pointed out in his last sermon that Jesus is the expected prophet like Moses, whom we should heed or be destroyed for not heeding. That's Jesus. Peter uh, pointed out that Jesus is also the fulfillment of the all-important messianic son of David prophecies, who would sit upon David's throne and he would reign in righteousness for all eternity. That's the Jesus Peter is talking about. Jesus is the full and complete expression of God's blessing to all the families of the earth through Abraham's family, as was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. He's the fulfillment of that. That is, that is localized in him. He is this Jesus. 
And Peter has reminded them that Jesus is also the prophesied servant of God who was to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, the one by whose wounds we are healed. That's this Jesus. That's the Jesus Peter's talking about. And that's the Jesus we need to talk about. The real Jesus who is unique, who has no competitors. There is no one like him. There is no other way to the Father. There's no other way to heaven, just Him. Jesus is the embodiment of all of those expectations. And they were expectations shared by people in the temple itself. They knew these prophecies. They knew those expectations. And they were known to this council that John and Peter were standing in front of. And so Peter makes it very plain here, plain here that there is salvation in no other name. We want to talk about names, by what name this, this uh, healing was done. And you want a name drop because John and Alexander are there. And they're very important. And, and Annas and Caiaphas and the, and the Kennedys and the whatever. They're there. They're the important. You want to talk about a name? There's no name like Jesus. There's salvation in no other name. His is the only name given to men by which we must be saved. And that's the message that he's preaching here. Jesus is the one we have to deal with. It's not enough for us to think about God. It's not enough for us to talk about God. It's possible to believe great things about God. But if you don't have Jesus, if you don't have this Jesus, if you don't know Him, and if I'm not talking about Him, we're, we're missing the point. Jesus is the name in whom is localized all of those, are, are, are localized all of those promises. It's not enough to be sincere in whatever religion you are and, and think that sincerity will be a road to lead you to God. It's, it's not enough for us, Christian, who are charged from the outside so often that, I mean, aren't you, isn't that kind of uh, exclusive? Isn't that, aren't you, aren't you, you know, um, you know, being bigoted or, or something against other religions or other uh, whatever? And so, Christians, you need to tone that stuff down. We don't get to tone that stuff down. There is salvation in Christ only. There is no other name. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so we have Jesus to deal with. And, and in our culture today, it very, it, it's acceptable to talk about God and acceptable to talk about Jesus in some sort of fuzzy, soft way. But if you talk about the Jesus of the Bible, you're going to run into some difficulty. And that's what Peter and John have run into but there is an inherent and explicit exclusivity in Christianity. It doesn't stand alongside other world religions. Choose this or choose that of equal validity. It doesn't stand next to them. It is exclusive. There is no way to get to God or heaven other than by faith in Christ. That truth may not play very well in our pluralistic society, but it is the truth of Scripture. It is what the Bible teaches us, and it is what is being taught here in this passage. In, in our world today, apparently, everyone gets to have their own truth. Almost everyone. They, everyone gets to have their own truth unless it's, unless it's an exclusive truth, and then you can't have that truth, which there are inherent fallacies in that. There's, uh, there are inconsistencies there, but that's the world we live in, right? But if we're going to teach the Bible, if we're going to stand for the Bible, if we're going to talk about Jesus as the Bible presents him, we will present a Jesus who is exclusive. 
We will present a faith that is exclusive. And that's what this verse is talking about here. He, he concludes there is salvation in no one else. And for these people who hated Jesus and cast their vote against him so that he would be crucified, so that he'd be killed and they'd get him out of the way finally, that would have been jarring news. But there is salvation in no one else except in the name of Jesus. And so the message, the implicit message right there and that Peter has presented already through his sermons is repent and believe in this Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will find him to be a perfect savior. That's the message to Caiaphas. That's the message to, to Annas and to, to John and Alexander. That's the message to this council. And that's the message that he preached in the temple. Repent and believe the gospel. And that's the message for us this morning also. That there is salvation nowhere else other than in Jesus. He's the only one who is uh, the bearer of our sins. And our standing before God is not good on our own. And there is no other way to improve it than by faith in Christ. And so the, the command is repent and believe. Turn away from what you've been trusting in. Turn, turn away from your stance against Jesus like the, the Sanhedrin, like this group had stood against Jesus. Turn away from that opposition to him and instead embrace him, trust him, rely on him. And you will find him to be a perfect savior for you, for all of your sins, that you could have peace with God. Because there's salvation only in him. But our passage is not done there. He moves on and, and, uh, and uh, Luke does in, in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may, not, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And so you see where their allegiance lies. At the end of all of this, at the, the, the proclamation of the message, you see where their allegiance lies. And of course, for the, for the council... Their allegiance was with themselves. That was what was important. Their name was what was important. Uh, the, the message and the, the miracle, those things were not as important. It, it's amazing to me how uh, a man's capacity to ignore the obvious. What's there and in, in plain right in front of them and don't even see it. And you see it in all different capacities, but we see it right here with these people. The religious leaders see that these are Jesus men. They know that they were, they recognize they were with Jesus. Whether they saw them or it was the way they preached or the place they preached, Solomon's portico, I don't know. But they, they knew these, were, these are Jesus' men preaching, the, preaching in the name of Jesus. They're astonished at their ability to, to uh, dialogue and, and dispute regarding theology. They weren't trained for that. They were, they were uneducated men. These were regular people. These were not 
you know, lawyers. These were not scribes. These were, you know, fishermen and people like that. They weren't prepared. They shouldn't have been, uh, they shouldn't have been able to debate and discuss and defend a theological position, defend biblical truth because they weren't prepared to. And yet here they were showing great wisdom, showing, uh, in their speech that they had great power in the scriptures. And so there was, there was a lot going on there. And then add to that the miracle. So they could think whatever they wanted about Peter and John. And then they'd look over and see this guy standing there. You know, he's, he's still got calluses on his knees and his hands from the way he had to move around on the ground. And he's standing there, just happy as he can be, probably jumping up and down every now and again just because he could for the first time ever. And so they would think what they wanted about Peter and John. And, and then they would look over at this guy and they would, what do we do with that guy? demonstrating the truth of what was said. Standing right there and they ignored it. They can't deny the miracle. They just ignore it. And how often does that happen? And you'll be in conversation with someone. You'll be talking about spiritual things. You'll be sharing the gospel. You'll be talking uh, about important matters like that. And, and a, a truth like this will come out it'll be just as simple and as plain as day. And we have the capacity just to overlook that thing entirely. And as if it never existed. And so for, for these people, all they really want to do is, is ignore this miracle that's happened. That was the confirmation of the message of Peter and John. They don't want to deal with it. They can't deny it because the guy keeps jumping up and down. But they want to ignore it. And so they're able to ignore it. I, I, I tell people that I have incredible powers of ignorance. That I can ignore a lot of things is what I mean. But they usually take it the way Chris did. But... <laughs> I, I love throwing Chris under the bus. It's because he sits in the front row, and I love him. So, <laughs> so the, the, what, what was valuable? What was important to these people? Was it was it looking at the information? Was it was it having this discussion and seeing where it might lead? Their position, their own name, was what was important. The rest of it doesn't really matter. We just need to deal with it and get past it because our position. Is too important. And you, so you see their allegiance to themselves, but that contrasts very greatly with uh, John and Peter. So verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We are compelled. We are compelled. And you may be a very great authority over us, you may have the power of our lives and our deaths in your hand. But there is a greater authority. And he compels us to speak of Jesus. So do what you must. You get to decide whether we should obey you or, or whether we should obey God. We're just going to obey God. And so their allegiance, at the risk of their lives, their allegiance is to God. They're going to do what the Lord says. They're going to represent Christ. They're going to be witnesses of Him as they were told to be. And you can see throughout the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the course of the New Testament that that is what they continued to do. At great expense. At the sacrifice of their health, their, their freedom, disfigurement from being stoned, and ultimately their death. Because they're going to obey God, regardless of the cost, regardless of the action of this council. So you see that their their allegiance is to God. But the story isn't done there. It doesn't finish. I, I, I love how um, how it ends there that verse twenty one, and when they had further threatened them, 
they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. There's a response of faith also. That you have this whole group of people, regular people like you and me, who were watching this go on, and they were giving God glory for what had happened because it's obvious a very powerful thing happened, the kind of thing only God can do. Maybe we should listen to this message. Maybe we should pay attention to this Jesus. Maybe, maybe we should give ear to this. And so you see that the church is growing and it is blossoming. It's, 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 it's booming. And you have the regular people who are seeing, well, obviously God's at work. That, that message didn't ring very true with the leadership of this council. But amongst the people... The name of Jesus was being believed in. There's such a contrast there, and that's kind of where I want to conclude our our time this morning, and that's why we started in Matthew chapter 23, is that you have the religious leadership who stood for their own position, for the propagation of their name, for their legacy. That's what's important. And they they were willing to deny um, reasonable argumentation, from Scripture, they were willing to deny miracles from God that demonstrated that, that it was true so that they could solidify their position. And then you've got the people on the other hand, regular people, and they were responding. They were believing. And they were trusting in Christ, and the church was growing and it was blossoming. There are several messages there for us, and while we're on this topic of uh, leadership and people, The gospel will grow and the church will expand in our nation amongst the people by the preaching of the word, by belief in the gospel amongst the people. I I, I pray for our leaders. We're supposed to pray for our leaders. And I pray for the conversion of our leaders. And I pray for the obedience to Christ of our leaders, our political leaders. I do that. But we have a picture here that carries out the gospel is much more acceptable to you and me than it is to the leadership because they've got something to lose. They have their own name. They have their own position that's going to be harmed by obedience to God. Well, I've got to be honest now. I've got to, I've got to have integrity with my money and, and uh, I have to be faithful to my wife. All of those things are consequences. All of those things are aspects of of walking with with Christ. And so the gospel almost always, I can't think of any exception to this, gets greater traction amongst the people, you and me, regular people. And so the hope for our nation is not for things from on high. The hope for our nation is for the proclamation of the gospel, people trusting Christ, the growth of the church, that people would believe in Jesus. That's the hope for our nation. That changes a nation. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is not in something that happens from on high. That was free. That wasn't even in my notes. <laughs> but there, there's, there's a related point here. The tradition. You know, if I could sing, I would sing the tradition song, but I can't, so I'll just do this instead. From Fiddler on the Roof, you all know it. You Hopefully you have the image and his voice in your, in your mind, tradition. And um, tradition is a very powerful thing in our lives. It's what we believe because we've always believed it. It's got to be so. And so we believe those things, right? And the person who declares the most loudly that, that they don't have traditions, that they just have the Bible, that's the person you watch out for because he's got the most traditions. He just doesn't realize it. 
Tradition will stand in the way of you seeing what's really in Scripture and living accordingly, believing accordingly, preaching accordingly. Because you already know it's true. I mean, it's already, uh, you've, you've always believed it, so it's just true, right? And so that's what you declare, and you see it everywhere you look, or you, you just you ignore when it's not there. Tradition can stand in the way and, uh, of us knowing the gospel. That's why the Word is so important. That's why the preaching of the Bible is so important. And that's, that's a big, big reason that we do expository preaching where we go through a book, most typically. Because then we're on the agenda that's, that's uh, de- uh, declared by the author of Scripture. The, the author here, Luke, but also the Holy Spirit. And so we want to be sensitive to tradition. It can stand in the way. It stood in the way of this council because they had the way things were always done. Jesus kind of shook that up, so they killed him. And now his disciples are shaking that up. That's not good, so they arrest him. Warn them, don't do that anymore. We're going to see that that gets worse as the story goes on. We need to question our traditions, question our assumptions, the things that we just know are true. And maybe it ain't necessarily so. Because Scripture is our authority. That's first. Second of all, may we never hinder people coming to Jesus. Standing up here, may I never hinder someone coming to Christ. May I never stand between as a as a block between Jesus and someone. These these people had the role of they were the, they, they they ran the temple. And how often did Jesus want to come and gather his children? The children of those, of those people, the, those that were being led by the Sanhedrin, by the, by the, the leadership of the, the religious leadership of the nation. And they stood in the way. And so he says to them seven times, woe to you. So may we never stand between Jesus and someone coming to Jesus. And finally, Peter and John showed a very great deal of boldness because in their mind they knew what was true and what was right and what was valuable. They knew for a fact. They were very well aware that obeying God is more important than obeying this council. Even if it means I'm going to be punished maybe to death by this council. It's more important to obey God. And so I'm going to. Because they understood who God really was. They, 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 know, they, they know God. And so they're willing to risk that. And it wasn't a list of, you know, I have ten lists of, you know, a list of ten things I want to do every day. And, and number one is, that, that wasn't it. They, they, their relationship with God, their knowledge of God was so deep that He's the center of all things. He's everything. So I'm going to live my life out of that. And so they did. And they were willing to proclaim Christ in that context. And so I want us, all of us, I want to be that bold. And I want all of us to have that kind of uh, relationship with Him, that kind of understanding, uh, uh, an understanding of who God truly is in His greatness and how mighty He is, that He's, that he's holy, that He's all-powerful, that He's the creator and sustainer of all things. And He has shown me mercy in Christ. That I can have peace with Him. What possibly could be more important than that? What would I not face because of that? Because of that truth, because of His mercy toward me in the gospel. That's the kind of boldness I want us to have. That's the kind of boldness I want to have. That 
He's the center of all things. He has given me peace with Him in Christ. What more could I want? And that's the attitude of, of the apostles as they go away in this situation. What, what more could they want? Yeah, the, the council can do what they want to them. That's fine. They have Christ. Nothing else matters. That's, that's, that's my desire for us, is to have that kind of love for Him, that kind of understanding that He really is the center of all things. And so He will govern all things I do. That's extremely freeing, by the way. When someone, you know, criticizes you for being a Christian or uh, talking that way about Jesus or for, uh, you know, being exclusive in your religious beliefs and there's only one way to God and what kind of an outmoded thing, you know, belief is that and you stand for that. There's great freedom in just knowing who God is, who He's revealed Himself to be in Christ. May that be the center of our lives. Let's pray. Father, I rejoice to read these words and I rejoice and am humbled to see the response of Peter and John how at, uh, in a, a, a frightening moment in a time when they could have been scared and they could have been uh, tempted to clam up or uh, soften the message of Jesus or something. Instead, we hear this message. There's salvation in no one else. Father, I thank you for the fact that there is salvation and that there is salvation in no one else. We don't deserve to be able to take the next breath, come into your presence, or know you at all. And... And in that context, you have provided salvation in your son, someone who came, your, your own son who came and stood in our place as, as a representative of us on the cross to bear my sin to the fullest, to pay for it so that the wrath of God was poured out on him, that all of it would be poured out, that there's none, none left for me, that you did that in Christ. But there is salvation in no one else. There's no other way. There's no other place we can put our faith. There's no other way we could clean up our lives or anything like that to come to know you. There is salvation only in Christ. We couldn't get rid of our sin. We couldn't. And uh, we would be bearing your wrath forever to our own destruction apart from Christ. And so I praise you that there is salvation. And I praise you that it is in Jesus himself. Thank you that he gave himself for us. Thank you that he went all the way to death, obedient to you to the point of death, and that you raised him from the dead. And now in Christ we have newness of life. Now in Christ we have your spirit dwelling within us. Father, help us, strengthen us to have this kind of understanding of who you are, that you really are the center of all things, and that we are united to you by faith in Christ. What a blessing and what a wonderful thing. That truly is, there, uh, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thank you for salvation in Christ. I pray that each of us here would repent and believe the gospel, that we would trust in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So there will be a family up here to pray with you if you want to pray. Uh, come on up. I know that's, that's a very meaningful thing. You can um, talk with them about the situation that you're going through and they will pray with you. Uh, otherwise, God bless you and you are dismissed.